0: to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick.
1: Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to COVID, business continuity, resilience, crisis management, well-being, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fulick there. I'm really easy to find and I do respond to everything I get. Alternatively, you can find me on alexfullock.com. Today, I finally have someone on the show who um, we've sent messages back and forth on LinkedIn all the time, and it's finally uh, going to be on the show talking on the topic of the future of work and business continuity in a post-COVID world. I wanna welcome to the show, Christine Miller. Chris, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thanks, Alex, and good day to those who are listening uh, to this um, presentation today.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad to have you here. Finally, after so long uh, of uh, you know seeing you on LinkedIn and us responding sometimes to each other's postings, and as I mentioned before, I had your name on a list of contact, and I guess uh, I lost it somehow. Uh, but I'm really glad that uh, you're here today.
2: Well, we're here together today, and welcome to Canberra. What you're looking at here is uh, Parliament House in Canberra, where I used to be their business continuity manager. Oh, I, I love Australia. Been there twice, and
1: I can't wait to get there again.
2: Yeah. We look forward to welcoming you back and getting on a few planes ourselves. <laughs>
1: yeah, me too, actually, very soon. Now, I know um, what you do and where you are and that. Could you take a minute or two and just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got into it? this wonderful industry of
2: ours. Absolutely, Alex. Happy to do so. So my background is in emergency management. So uh, I had a long history as a, in mountain rescue, policing, and uh, then, then I moved into other aspects of emergency management, such as counterterrorism, incidents, exercises, and planning. And then I moved into recovery. So things like the Bali bombings, the Indian Ocean tsunami, and so on. And then... I was a bit burnt out, I have to admit, and one of my bosses said, hmm, I'm looking for a business continuity manager. Uh, would you like to have a three-month trial to see if you could make the transition from emergency to business continuity management? And I went, oh, um, uh, what's that? What's, what's business continuity? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 16-plus years later, and remember I used to be involved in search and rescue, I haven't been able to find my way out. Business continuity is very sticky. And as people say, but, you know, you've been doing the same thing. Yes, I've been doing the same thing, but in many places. So the basics are still the same, as we would call it in Australia, PPRR, planning preparedness, response, recovery. And it's just a matter of scale. So whereas I used to be in the business of trying to save the country or large groups of Australians on or offshore... Now I'm in the business of trying to save one business at a time.
1: Well, I'm glad to have you here and I'm interested to hear uh, what you have to say. Thanks, Alex. I think you've got some slides you want to share as we go through our um, talk. So let me know when you want to show them um, and I'll just ask the first question and then feel free. You can just go ahead and show whenever you want to. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So, Uh, The first thing we want to talk about is, um, like previous pandemics, COVID, uh, SARS, of which I was impacted by SARS, um, it's changed the future of our work and business in many ways. So first, I'd like to look at how do you think it's changed for um, individuals and employees?
2: In many ways, but let's just take a step back into the history. I think it's important. A lot of people are behaving like... um, This is sort of the first pandemic, when, of course, it hasn't, it isn't. There's um, recorded evidence that dates back as far as the Roman times. And, of course, people will remember the Black Death um, history that went on for four centuries. And, of course, the Spanish flu, as it was mistakenly called. Accurately, it was pneumonic influenza. It was only called the Spanish flu because of World War I uh, media restrictions. uh, And, unfortunately, the Spanish people were... Um, neutral during World War One, so they got labelled with the flu name. Uh, so, but if you look at the history, it's about a 100-year cycle. So really, we shouldn't say that this is surprising that we find ourselves in this current pandemic. It certainly didn't come from nowhere. There's a long history and a long reason to expect it. And when I was working on the national plan for pandemic influenza, I remember that then... Chief Medical Officer of Australia, Dr. John Hovar, now Professor John Hovar, saying, we are not planning for if, we are planning for when. Mm. So we're in the when now. And what does that mean for us? Um, just quickly, I was involved in a number of other pandemics, AIDS, HIV in the mid-80s, SARS, as it was called, SARS-CoV-1, the first SARS pandemic, which impacted in Toronto, your city, and yeah. in Asia. Uh, The swine flu pandemic of 2009-10, I was a business continuity manager in a major hospital in Australia then, and of course now SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, which is what we're dealing with. But just to to think about uh, the impacts on employees, some businesses have had to deal with COVID deaths amongst their staff or other impacts, such as greater caring responsibilities, which may also take Uh, critical staff away from your business. And I I recall in another place, uh, not Parliament House, but elsewhere I worked, we had the death of one employee and it was like a dark cloud descended on that business. So even the loss of one employee or their unavailability or some sort of adverse circumstances in their caring roles increasing can have quite a significant impact on a business. So what if those employees that have COVID, long COVID, increased responsibilities for caring, what if they're your critical staff? How is that going to impact on your business continuity plan? Are the alternates prepared and ready and trained to step up to the plate if this should happen to your critical staff? What would be the impact of long COVID on that critical staff over the length? You may have alternates that can step up up to the plate for a short term, but what if it's into the long term? Because we know, for instance, in the UK, the, the data there, uh, 1.3 million was the last count I saw from their national office. That's a lot of people who will need extended care. So it's not simply a matter of, of uh, initial care. Uh, it can be very lengthy, very expensive, and long COVID uh, sufferers often experience significant organ challenges for a a period of time we don't understand yet. The research is still so limited. And what if those COVID survivors are small business owners like me? I'm a sole trader. Now, I work in partnership with other colleagues so that my clients would not be um, left in the lurch. But not every small business has planned that sort of succession planning. And and, uh, so we need to think about that. Well, what if you of the critical suppliers for, your, for another business? Uh, one of my colleagues used to be a business continuity manager for a power station, and he said he was very confident about the state of play within his fence line. But once he moved out of the fence line, he was much less confident about his uh, business, state of business continuity planning, particularly with his critical suppliers. And even large companies, I'll give you an example of Porsche, for instance, Porsche had a windscreen wiper manufacturer go bust on them. His machinery failed, and he'd been trying to get finance from banks to buy new machinery because he knew uh, the plant life of that machinery was coming to an end. Anyway, it failed, and Porsche had thousands of cars sitting in their lots with no windscreen wipers. You can't deliver it. It got to a vice president who turned up at this gentleman's factory and said, hello, where are our windscreen wipers? And... And the gentleman pointed out that he just couldn't get finance. And so the Vice President said, that's fine, here's a cheque, we've just taken you over. Here's the finance you need. I need my windscreen wipers." So even before COVID, we had these challenging times of supply chain failures. And, of course, COVID has just really brought that into sharp focus. Of course, you may have seen those bizarre photos in Australia of women fighting over toilet paper in our... A- well, and shopping I, I, center I was I was. around the world. Lovely. <laughs> yes, lovely. And and uh, to sort of counter that, I saw a florist that had changed their offering online to um, a toilet paper design. So instead of flowers, you were getting delivered toilet paper from obviously a loving relative who mm-hmm. was trying to be helpful.
1: It's interesting you mentioned uh, SARS and employees. Um, that you know may unfortunately have uh, died of COVID or SARS or something. Where I was working at the time, um, a company just based in uh, just outside of Toronto. And we had a couple of employees in the Toronto area come down with SARS. And we had some employees um, in Vancouver, which was the other big hotspot in Canada, uh, come down with SARS. And we, you know, a lot of people knew them. So it put a lot of strain on uh, the rest of us because, well, am I now going to get it? Because that person, you know, at the time, it was only just starting. So there weren't any restrictions in place and things like that. People were just watching what's going on. And it kind of created some panic amongst employees. And, you know, if I get it, how do I know I have it? If I catch something, am I going to take it back to my family? You know, is my, my parents who I look after going to get sick now? Um, it really changed. You put it well, it, you know, put a dark, you know, cloud over things. And it really did. You know, mm-hmm. even though nobody died, thank goodness. Um, but just the thought of that put a dark cloud over everything. And it was tough to, to get through for a few weeks.
2: Indeed, and that example I gave you, that colleague that died, I, f- I felt it impacted on about 1,200 staff for that business and uh, the 600 staff that worked in that office. Uh, so in the end, uh, we, we did a smoking ceremony, which is a traditional way of sort of farewelling the spirit for our Indigenous Australians. And Needless to say, we had to shut all the fire systems down because otherwise we would have got very wet. Uh, but we hold it on the on the steps of the building where this gentleman died. It turned out he he had a bad heart. He had a heart attack and basically just slid off his chair in the office. Uh, but um, I remember when we were discussing the the smoking ceremony, and um, and the the uh, head of the the crisis management team, the fellow who actually offered me my first business continuity job too, by the way, um, he and and the secretary, the CEO, said, Oh, I don't know if this will work, but the building is, the, the, um, the atmosphere has become so difficult in the building, not just for the Aboriginal people, but for all of the staff, that it might be a healthy thing for everyone to sort of mm-hmm. farewell this person. And so they, they had the smoking ceremony on the stairs. We went inside and had a nice morning tea um, where the, the uh, deputy secretary, the deputy CEO said nice things about this person and other people were invited to say, you know, their experience of this person. So we gave him a a nice farewell, and and I think that started to draw the line under it. Mm -hmm. And, of course, here, because of COVID restrictions, many funerals, they've been greatly restricted in number to 10, 20, depending on what the rules were at the time. So, for instance, a business that might sadly have had a death or uh, some other adversity due to COVID, they haven't had the opportunity for the usual Uh, formal farewell that would be in place um, pre-COVID, where, you know, often if there's been a death of a colleague, um, lots of the colleagues go to the funeral to show respect. Well, you haven't been able to do that in COVID times. So businesses need to be a bit creative in thinking about that.
1: It's interesting you brought that point up um, because I was uh, talking about this the other day with someone, that if... You know, in some respects, we may not even know that someone lost uh, a loved one uh, during COVID. Um, we may know that we lost a colleague for COVID, um, and as you say, you know we couldn't celebrate their life you know and, and go to the funeral or any kind of ceremony. Now that organizations are starting to open up their doors again, all these people that have experienced trauma through uh, the COVID years, are going to be reliving that trauma again. Because, you know, now you've got people who couldn't express their sorrow, are now with their other colleagues and can't express their colleague, uh, their, their sorrow face-to-face in the lunchroom or the coffee break room or whatever it may be, or find out that, um, you know, Alex's uh, mother died of COVID, which I didn't tell anybody about, but all of a sudden it's going to come out. How am I going to feel now? How are my colleagues going to feel? When we're, in all instances, it looks like, okay, COVID is slowly going away. It's not, but (laughs) slowly going away, roping up offices. And now I have to relive that trauma as I talk to all my colleagues. That's going to have an impact on the management, leadership, the organization.
2: Absolutely. And I think we've got a tsunami of mental health issues that we haven't even really begun to understand. Mm -hmm. And, and during the COVID time, some smart businesses have been doing clever things to support mental health and connectivity. You want to keep your team feeling connected. So, for instance, Employment Hero, which is a major recruiter in Australia, uh, Friday afternoons between 2.30 and 4, they were having a, a camera on, um, have a drink, you know, bring you coffee. If you need something more, that's fine. Uh, and you mustn't talk about work. <laughs> so you can talk about anything else you liked the football as we were talking about before we came on whatever but not work and, they, and as I said the requirement was camera on and they expected uh, all, all, um, all of their staff members to join in and if they didn't uh, the manager would follow up with that person and see you know what was happening were they busy with homeschooling I don't know if this has been an issue in Canada Yes, but yeah. when we wrote plans, we never imagined we sort of we wrote remote, remote work into the plan, but not remote work with the kids. Mm-hmm. Well, that was <laughs> one of the
1: challenges, too. Oh, before I forget, for the record, my mother did not die. She's fine. Oh, um, <laughs> that was only and my just... parents
2: are fine, too, thank
1: you. <laughs> <laughs> just for the record. Um, but that was something that impacted organizations because a lot of times there's always leadership and management are here. Employees are over here, but yet with COVID, everybody, everybody got impacted the same, not necessarily the same way, but everyone got impacted. The CEO mm. of a company all of a sudden wasn't just running the company from their dining room table, but they were also
2: teaching their 12-year-old you know, math at the same time. Exactly. And of course, it impacted on bandwidth. I don't know about how your MBN, or your, we have a thing called National Broadband Network in Australia and interestingly the structure of that broadband puts bigger pipes and bigger bandwidth into our CBDs because that's where the banks are the stock exchange all sorts of users of internet uh, connectivity mm-hmm. but what happens when you're relying on the suburbs which are not set up with the same bandwidth pipe strength Uh, capacity as the CBD. When you've hollowed out the CBD because you told everyone to work remotely, who possibly can, uh, you're putting great strain on the infrastructure that was never designed to have large workflows, big Excel spreadsheets, big finance systems, platforms running through it. It was never designed for that because the cities were designed for that, the city centre, the downtown, the CBD as we call them, central business district. The whole of our IT infrastructure was designed to give them maximum capacity because that's where the workers were, but they're not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Now what?
1: Well, I know um, what what's changing uh, in a lot of places, and I'll use my neighbourhood as an example, but the telecommunication companies and the service providers are, have all upgraded or in the process of upgrading. They're digging up the streets and upgrading mm-hmm. all the infrastructure because that demand is there now. So many people more are working from home or a high, some sort of a hybrid situation. So either way, more people are going to be working from home, and that demand mm-hmm. there is now. You know what mm-hmm. you had in your central business district. We want in our homes
2: and in our neighborhoods. Exactly and here right now. And I've, 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 I've had, really had to upgrade. Sorry, I've had to upgrade my my two homes. I've got a holiday cottage and a, a home in Canberra. Uh, I've had to upgrade both of them to business speeds and pay the extra because before all this, I didn't need business speed. Home Home packages were fine. But now that I work almost exclusively from one or the other of my homes or remotely if we travel a little bit around Australia, when that was possible, when the COVID restrictions released, I need faster internet. And and uh, just thinking about returning to the office. So, for instance, in Australia, it's become two-three has become quite uh, popular. That is, two days working from home, three days in the office, or vice versa. Or some offices are now um, not returning to the office; they're just staying remote, and maybe having a quarterly staff meeting where everybody comes together. Uh, others are not even doing that. And, and uh, for instance, Barclays Bank, which is hardly the, uh, an example of, of radicalism, uh, they're, they're thinking of reducing their, their um, footprint, their office footprint, between a third and a half in the UK. And if you think about uh, the requirement uh, for London-based office space, that's going to be a huge saving for the business. Yeah. So there are a whole lot of interesting things going on in terms of this hybrid work particularly in a service-based economy like Australia is. We're heavy into the services with some rural um, export, possibly the same in Canada. So we're seeing a lot of people working fully remotely. We're seeing really innovative ideas about, you know, sometime in the office, sometime working remotely or from home, if you prefer. Uh, we're also seeing things like Singapore, where they were cycling people through. So one week in the office, one week at your remote business continuity site, one week from home, working through it, uh, and doing deep cleans sort of from Friday afternoon to Monday morning before the new team came in. and And in the Philippines, so uh, one of my Australian business continuity manager colleagues had a, um, had something really bizarre happen. Uh, he had an offshore call center in the Philippines, and it turned out that working remotely, sort of assumes that you've got tablets and laptops and other devices so that, you know, bring your own device actually works. But it turned out many of his Filipino call center workers had none of those toys. So they went into the office, unplugged everything, took it home, hey, presto, set it all up, headsets, array. Of course, the IT security people went at a total meltdown. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What's the state of the security on that router? Oh no! <laughs> and okay. it's fascinating. Yeah, how how many of my businesses and clients have told me, "No, no, no, we can't work remotely because of all these IT security requirements." And then suddenly they are working remotely. Oh goodness, how did that happen? They had to have pulled out a whole lot of security controls real fast. Well, so would, it, they, would they have pulled
1: out, or um, security controls, or would they have? Um, how, how do I put this nicely? Um, where, where before the pandemic, they may have been so strong, you have to do this. This is the, the law, period. You, thou yeah. shall not do anything else. And they say, okay, well, maybe we were a little harsh on that. You could get away with doing this and that, you know, um, you know, backing off of the, the harsh type thing.
2: Yes, yes. Some of the protocols, it was just uh, protocols rather than actual controls. Uh, but, you know, having worked here, there are an awful lot of controls there and an awful lot of can't do this, can't do that there. Yeah. And somehow or other, some of those things that can do now. But of course, it's no surprise that as a result of some of these controls being reduced and some of the protocols being lessened, that we've now seen a tsunami of cyber attacks.
1: Yeah, well, I was just going to say that. And now we're kind of going back again to stronger protocols because of events in the world and. The, um, the, the risk of cyber attacks, ransomware, or different ways of doing it is now on the increase in part because so many people are at home. It's easier to get exactly. through one person than it is to try to get through into that whole building
2: type thing. And if you're doing homeschooling on one device that you're using for your work, uh-oh. <laughs> mm. uh-huh. Now, some, some businesses I, I've come across have smartly sent out increased uh, security software onto home devices. So they've expanded their license so that it covers the workers bring your own device at home. So they've up intentionally upgraded their cybersecurity at minimal cost because often you've got a you know, multiple user license. What's wrong with buying another 500 users at the rate you're already getting? And, of course, it reduces your risk. So some smart, smart businesses are doing simple things like that to increase um, their security capa- um, capability on the bring-your-own-device situation COVID's forced us in. I mean, at one stage, we were waiting six weeks or longer for a laptop. Yeah. New employees
1: kind of are right now because of the supply chain issues.
2: Exactly. And another quick thing before we wrap up and go to a commercial break. Yes, I've been well read. Uh, Location of work. See, this is where I used to live, but now I live at a holiday cottage.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, I live by the sea, and I work from there most of the time. I'll give you a a little view of that. Oh, beautiful. See, this is what my office looks like most of the time, rather than this more formal. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Jervis Bay. <laughs> and of course, I'm not the only Australian that's discovered that it's possible for you to move to a regional area where it's cheaper to live. Our capital cities are very expensive. I've been to Toronto and Vancouver. I know it's not very not cheap, all. cheap in those cities either, and Washington, D.C., and the like. So uh, we're seeing people move beyond the capital cities for cheaper housing, better lifestyle. If you can work remotely, why work remotely in an expensive capital city? When you can live by the sea like I do now. Yeah. And further to that, um, my first degree with an industrial organizational psychology and my HR friends told me they're now recruiting globally. So yes. whereas we, we tended to recruit people who lived about an hour, maybe two commute from their fixed place office, uh, why bother with that if they don't mind fitting in with Australian time zones and business timing we yeah. can recruit talent from anywhere
1: yeah i'm currently working with people that are um on the other side of canada you know and they said you know usually they used to look just kind of local to to their office but now with covid and the ability to work remote and you know ship a laptop or whatever the case may be like when we can look beyond that we can we have access to talent Uh, and resources we've had access to before, but we didn't pay attention to because we just looked at distance. Oh, you're too far. And that's it.
2: Exactly. So uh, there's a whole sort of the the HR space is really opening up. The recruitment is opening up to a much broader panel of potential uh, resources for many businesses. And some managers are finding that a challenge, of course, and some employees are finding it a challenge. Some employees, you know, the water cooler chat, as they call it, they're really missing that. It's it's uh, difficult to have the water cooler chat on a Zoom call Yeah. <laughs> <or> yeah. <laughs> Microsoft Teams or whatever you're using.
0: <laughs> on
2: that
1: note, we've come to the end of our first segment. Today, we're talking with Chris Miller and we will be
0: right back.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one. Hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business.
3: Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackle their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. Say It Skillfully is my new radio show about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said. This is your host, Molly Chang. Call in and I'll help you find the right words to tackle any difficult conversation or ticklish situation you've been avoiding. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're a part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Join me live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected.
1: Welcome back. Today, we are talking with Chris Miller on the topic of the future of work and business continuity in a post-COVID world. Um, Lots of great information there in the first segment, Chris. Thank you very much. My first question for segment two is, uh, a lot of people say that business continuity failed them uh, in relation to COVID. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, in some ways they're right and in some ways they're wrong. So, for instance, yes, I think many of our business kind of new, plans were focused on acute incidents where we thought it had a relatively small elapsed time rather than something like COVID, which will be years And uh, so we we really didn't prepare for prolonged incidents such as a pandemic. And we perhaps overemphasized, and my IT people will be very upset with me, critical IT services over people availability. And that has been very much tested in the pandemic times. A couple of my brave clients actually had pandemic exercises before COVID. Uh, They were at pandemic influenza. But uh, one of them I I remember, I I asked uh, the the crisis management team, who had caring responsibilities for small people, school-age children, older relatives, perhaps someone with a disability that they cared for in their home or or on a regular basis? Out of the 20, we had one person left. Wow. So who's your critical um, response team then? when you take out you know, kindergartens, schooling, uh, aged and disability care, which of course have been very high priorities during COVID, where many of the, the paid services or volunteer services have been unavailable, how has that impacted on your critical staff? And in another exercise I did, I said, count four. So one of you is dead, two of you are sick or caring, and one of you is here. So I just went round the room and said, who's left? Ah, so who of your uh, uh, critical response team will be available? So based on that one in four availability under pandemic influenza, uh, we've been lucky to do that in COVID in Australia. I don't know about Canada or elsewhere, but chances are you found yourself similarly threadbare when it comes to your critical staff because of those very good reasons of homeschooling and so on.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, the other, but on the plus side, business continuity had much to offer if you understood your supply chains, your dependencies. And, for instance, in Australia, 80% of our cargo used to come in with passengers on top and cargo in the belly of the aircraft. But when the uh, Australian government, in its infinite wisdom, shut our borders on, in March of twenty and only reopened them two years later, we lost all that belly cargo overnight. So our air cargo rates jumped 20 times what they were before COVID. Our sea container rates jumped 12 times. Leasing of a ship, if you could get one, jumped eight times the cost of pre-COVID rate. We had empty containers scattered all over the globe, not where we needed them to be. We had shipping companies unwilling to move empty containers because they don't get paid for those. Mm -hmm. So we had governments trying to uh, desperately pay them to move containers to where they needed to be. We had severe problems with crew rotations. We had some poor devils stuck on their merchant ships for two years or more.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing uh, um, something, I think, in Vancouver. uh, They were desperate for... um, the product or whatever was on the ship, but because of all the COVID restrictions, these people couldn't return to their home country, and they couldn't come into Canada. True. So they, were, they were stuck. You know, yes. what, what, what's the ship do? Uh, I, I'm assuming that kind of thing happened in Australia, too.
2: Oh, yes. Uh, we managed to get some of the crews rotated off uh, with, with sensible shipping companies working with our maritime unions, uh, but some of them, it was not possible. And uh, and of course, if they came off their ship, they had to go into two weeks quarantine, which is quite expensive. So the shipping companies had to pay for that. Uh, so so the um, uh, what do they call themselves? The sort of um, seafarers helpers. Uh, they were giving them phone cards and doing what they could, <coughs> excuse me, to help them keep in touch with their loved ones. Uh, so we were trying all sorts of innovative ways. If we couldn't get people off the ship we give them phone cards and other help to to maintain those connections with their loved ones when they were stuck at sea for indefinite periods. And, of course, the worry about that when you've got tired, demotivated crews, evergreen anyone, sideways in the Suez Canal, <laughs> and we've had some very nasty shipping accidents, and one can only wonder if part of that is because the crews were on too long and not rotated in their normal three-month cycle. Mm-hmm. There have been some very real problems, and we've been heavily dependent on sea cargo because of the reduced air cargo. And, and these, these crews have been so critical. But did we really understand that before COVID, or have we learnt that the hard way? And, and talking about lessons, uh, smart businesses have been doing what we call mid-action reviews, uh, which Gestellman is what they call it, I call them interim post-incident reviews or interim after action reviews, whatever you call it. You want to be capturing those lessons and you want to be injecting them into your plans because, as you rightly pointed out, we're not over COVID. The pandemic is still with us. We could have to deal with nastier variants. We've got Omicron, now we've got BA1, BA2. Now we've got XE, which is apparently 10% more transmissible than and Omicron BA-1, we're not out of the woods yet. So we need to be capturing those lessons before more lockdowns or restricted environments reappear and get injected back into our businesses. We need to be prepared. And the best way to do that is is, these reviews partway through the process before we forget the lessons, the ideas that we sort of captured during our lockdown period that we may need again. And the wise businesses are capturing those on a six-monthly basis or at least annually and feeding those back into their plans using the best methodology that the Australian, British and American armies use and increasingly Australian emergency managers and business continuity managers using the so-called oil methodology, which is observations, insights, lessons identified but not upgrading those lessons to lessons learned until action is taken, corrective action. I get very annoyed when I hear people talking about lessons learned. And I go, were they? Oh. How often do you go to an exercise and hear the same story every time? Oh, it, a lesson
1: learned, I, I've had so many conversations about it. A lesson isn't learned until or unless something changes. Exactly. And, And too often in project management, when they do lessons learned, they wait for the very end when three quarters of the people that were working on the project are gone, taking their skills and knowledge and experiences with them, working on something else, or if they're contractors, different clients, and the lesson learned ends up being a finger pointing exercise.
2: Yeah, absolutely not. You You need it to be... You need it to be injecting improvements into your plan. Continuous improvements, as I often say with my exercises, it's not about fault finding. I don't care if the exercise scenario falls over. Really, I don't. But what did you learn? What were the ideas that you picked up? How can we inject those into making your plans more robust so that you don't fall over at the first hurdle next time or the second hurdle? You clear those because you've already dealt with them. One of my wise managers, uh, Lisa Paul, who ran the Department of Education and Employment for the Australian government, enormous uh, part of the Australian government business, about 25% of the budget. And people think defence is big on the budget. She used to say that business continuity planning is like a crevasse. If you don't have a plan, your crevasse is very wide. Good luck, baby. If, If you... Start planning and start preparing and start capturing those lessons and injecting them into your plans from incidents and exercises. You're bringing the crevasse closer together. It'll never touch because there's always things you can't anticipate. But the wise uh, business leader, as she was, tries to get those things that you have to decide on the day down to the barest minimum. And if you can do that through exercises and reviewing your incidents, including COVID, You've got a whole lot less stress on the day, a whole lot less decisions you have to make now, 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 with very little information because you covered off on a lot of those uh, observations and insights and lessons from previous experience.
1: Now, one of the things that happened with business continuity, because we're talking about how you know, some organizations and leaders think business continuity failed them. Is it also the other way around? Business Mm. continuity was trying, has been for years, and continues, I'm sure, to try and get the message across, you know, using some of the examples you said, and everyone ignored them. And then when something Mm. happened, you know, it's, well, I was here, I've been trying to push you in this direction. Sometimes it seems as though the organization failed business continuity, not business continuity failed the organization.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the problems here is um, that we're boxing people into business continuity operational Mm. instead of appreciating its capacity to be both tactical and strategic as well. And so some of the smarter businesses have woken up that your business continuity manager can't just help you through the, the new normal, which is where we are at present, but can help you plan to the next normal because we're actually very good in the recovery space. So the smart businesses are capitalising on the capacity of their business continuity managers for that evening out because I often say my um, business continuity practice is in two parts. One is to understand your business as usual and smooth it out so that its vulnerabilities are less because I I see business continuity plan as like a continuum. So you get um, business as usual disruptions. Uh, that uh that you can reach out and deal with and you see that in hr it property or uh, security all those kind of places mm-hmm. you might think that business as usual is going to be this but you come into your office and there's an immediate problem and you have an elasticity in your business kind of in your business as usual to reach out and draw that into business as usual but the business continuity plan is when that elasticity is is beyond the normal elasticity to deal with and that's when you need to switch your plan on. So it's this whole conundrum. Now, I'm kind of lucky as a consultant. I generally get engaged by someone with chief in their name. So I sort of get immediate entree to that strategic space, that strategic thinking. But many business continuity managers i am observed, they get pushed down the org chart so far that they can't reach up and they can't offer their strategic and tactical advice because they're thought of as only offering operational advice. And of course, if you're not operating in a fixed office location, which a lot of business continuity plans focus very much on, why do you need them? And sadly, too many Australian business continuity managers have been laid off at the very time when the business needed the most. Oh my goodness.
1: Yes. Same, same thing, well, I think, around the globe. That happened to a lot uh, of, of people. Uh, you know, I, I knew a half a dozen people that were let go, and they were quite knowledgeable, and it was simply for that reason.
2: Yeah, so turning to something, and, and the chief advisors were not the business continuity managers. They intended to be the HR managers or the work health and safety advisors, those kind of people. And, of course, they have things to offer in this space, but so do your business continuity managers. So the smart businesses with chiefs, you know, chief operating officers do understand what business continuity can offer them. They've captured that that information, and I've seen some business continuity managers get access to the board, the executive boards, and all sorts of things because they've been smart enough to make use of that wonderful resource that they have their business continuity manager.
1: Well, that that leads me to the to uh, my next question: How do you see the business continuity professional's role changing as a result of COVID? Because you just gave some examples now of they're seeing the board of directors. They're getting where they need to go. So, (coughs) excuse me. Where do you see the role
2: going? I think the smart money is being much more strategic and much more tactical. Certainly keeping a bit of the operational elements ticking over because we can't sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater, as the expression goes. But reaching upwards and being much more in that strategic and tactical space rather than being ghettoised into sort of work people, rather than trusted advisors. That's the space we need to be. That's the future for business continuity because that's that whole sort of resiliency thing. Um, Executives don't want to talk about business continuity. That's that's the work people. They want to talk about resilience. How can we make our organisation more resilient? And we still need to make our organisations and businesses more resilient to COVID. The variants and the outbreaks will continue. That's where I was going to go with uh,
1: resilience, because um, I'm I'm seeing business continuity kind of starting to become. We, we've talked about it for years, but now it's actually happening. Is being a bridge between many of these different groups: security, crisis management, mm. Mm. marketing, sales, IT. You know, and getting them all together. To understand where their handshakes are, where their dependencies are. <clears throat> you know, it's one thing to have a security response plan, but if business continuity is not involved, then business is sitting there idle doing absolutely nothing, no idea. IT DRP is going, well, am I supposed to do anything? You know, so <laughs> I'm seeing that the role of business continuity management or whatever that title may become. Starting to be the bridge and bring all Mm. the things together.
2: Well, and I often say to the new business continuity managers I mentor that uh, being a business continuity manager is a great entree to being the CEO because you have to understand the veneer of everything in the business as a business continuity manager. And as a CEO, you have to understand the veneer of everything in the business. So we're sort of moving into emerging trends in business continuity, but I think there's a really great set of exciting emerging trends in in the next normal because we're in the new normal now. If people are looking back to trying to recover pre-COVID business as usual, that's nostalgia, folks. That's gone. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, you need to be evening out your new normal in COVID, living with COVID times, but also planning for the next normal. Which will include some wonderfully exciting trends in machine learning, the uptake of artificial intelligence and robotics. The Japanese have done wonderful work in care robots for aging uh, Japanese citizens because of their cohort, micromanufacturing and <coughs> construction, where we're moving the factories, little mini factories closer to the construction site. And we're also observing because of all these problems with supply chains, onshoring rather than offshoring in manufacturing. So we used to move our manufacturing to cheap labour countries. Now we're bringing it back on and relying on technology. We're seeing a lot more robotics and clever stuff happening. Yeah. So the smart business continuity managers have been planning and assisting in the return to work and continuing work while we live with COVID, but it's now is the time to start planning forward. The future is ours, but we as business continuity managers and business leaders we need to grab and grasp those opportunities to keep on keeping on with the best plans for the n- new normal now and the next normal that we must be planning for. We need to get on the front foot, as we'd say in cricket, but handing in baseball and softball too. We need to prepare. And even if the future plans that we're looking at for two to five years hence don't come to pass, the planning, that exercise of planning, that collective thinking, uh, and drawing on, on the skills of all of our team, the business continuity managers, the HR, the work health and safety, security managers, property managers, all those people that are critical staff and our um, crisis response teams, they've all got great ideas. And we need to be continuing to do those mid-action reviews, capturing those ideas, injecting them into our plans. Yeah. We're in the new normal now. We've got to adjust to living with COVID. And as I said... Before COVID, it's gone. It's nostalgia. And I know a lot of people look wistfully back to business as usual before COVID. We need to accept that that's gone. And that will, will possibly require some support. We talked earlier about mental health challenges. And I think that's an area that we haven't understood in business, what that impact can be. So the smart businesses are smoothing out their business as usual but in a way that can cope with future lockdowns, outbreaks, variants, but planning for the future, the next normal. So that's my best advice to you all. Plan for the next normal, smooth out the new normal now.
1: I I just wanted to add, I, I, I think COVID has finally got through people's heads that business continuity management isn't just about response. It's about prepare. And when things happened, a lot of people found a lot of organizations and communities found they weren't prepared and they they had a response plan but it was already too late something has happened
2: and now we're behind the eight ball playing catch-up you know and yes all, all my business continuity plans sorry alex all my business continuity plans have preparedness response and recovery to resume business as usual as key features yeah. and if there's an incident i say to people just throw away the preparedness because if you haven't got it, well, it's too late now, you're in the response phase. <laughs> but I always encourage my clients to invest in preparedness because, for instance, we know in emergency management from FEMA data, for every $1 you invest in preparedness saves you 4 in response and recovery. And in uh, Hurricane Katrina data, it could be the return on investment could be as good as 11 So preparedness is where the smart money
1: Yeah. And on that note, we've come to the end of our show. Chris, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise. I really
2: appreciate it. And I'm glad to have finally got you on the show. Thanks very much, Alex. And I hope I've shared some ideas that would be useful to your listeners. Thank you. Oh, lots of ideas.
1: I hope everyone was paying attention. (laughs) So thank you again. And everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.